been a long couple of weeks for the family. It is good to be, I, I just realized that's the third time I've said that. It really is. I'm glad to be back with all of you. Um, I have to say, after listening to Pastor Rachel's sermon, um, I think I have to say that I'm just not going to be able to allow her to preach anymore. Oh, no, she did a great job. I'm just concerned about my job security. Um, it's really good to be able to leave on short notice for a family tragedy and not have to worry about what's going on back here, that there were some very capable people here to hold the fort. And not only hold the fort, but she really, specifically in the sermon, moved the ball forward and added something to the sermon series that wouldn't have had otherwise. What we're doing is we're looking at the command that we've been given to love our neighbors, and specifically we're looking back at the story of Abraham as the first person that God really commissioned to love his neighbors by carrying the blessing of God to the people of Canaan. And today we're moving into Genesis 14, which in some ways you could argue is the greatest success that Abraham has in this area. It's one of the highlights of his attempts to love his neighbors. Um, and it's, it's really fascinating if you're interested in lists of names of obscure Middle Eastern rulers um, and, and that kind of thing. It, it does also have the very first war recorded in the Bible, so that's interesting. But within this story this, of this obscure conflict in the ancient Near East, we find some actually very convicting and to me very challenging principles to guide us in how God calls us to love our neighbors. So we're going to dig into the story, and it starts, we've been focused, laser focused on this one man and his family, and for a moment, when we start chapter 14, we zoom way out to talk about world or regional politics of the time. Chapter 14 begins this way. At the time when Aram, Amraphel was king of Shinar, Ariok king of Elisar, Kedalaomer king of Elam, and Tidal king of Goyim, these kings went to war against Bera king of Sodom, Bersha king of Gomorrah, Shinab king of Adma, Shemeber king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. All well-known figures to all of you, I'm sure. You'll know exactly what we're talking about now, right? Got the context? All these latter kings joined forces in the Valley of Siddim, that is, in the Dead Sea Valley, for 12 years, they had been subject to Ketalaomer, but in the 13th year, they rebelled. Okay, now to understand what's going on, you have to know who we're talking about, and most of us don't. In fact, most people have, throughout history haven't known because the five cities, the five kings, their cities no longer exist, and we aren't even entirely sure where they were. But as far as I can tell, in my personal opinion, they're all somewhere around the north end of the Dead Sea. And we might talk about why I think that when we get to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, basically, that's where we find the evidence of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. But to, uh, it could technically be that they cover as much as this, uh, the entire, from the north of the Dead Sea to the south. That could be the entire reach of these five cities. Okay, so, but I want to make a distinction. These kings are only kings of cities. So in our modern language, we might better call them mayors. Okay? So think of them as the five mayors, because as you read the story, you think, oh, it's five against four, so who has the advantage? Well, the five, because there's five of them, right? But king is a pretty broad term. In, in this case, the five are mayors. The four are actually a bit more like emperors, because as we look at their territory, we have to zoom way out, and you see that the five kings are this teeny little area over by the Dead Sea, whereas 
Every one of the kings, the four kings, rules an area bigger than all of the five mayors. So Shinar, which is heading this coalition, is, is the older name for Babylon. You've got Elam over by the Persian Gulf. As far as we can tell, Elisar and Goyim are up in Turkey. So this is a coalition of empires that have come together in order to dominate the region around them, and they basically charge the smaller kingdoms protection money. And so five of these mayors get it in their heads that, hey, you know what would be a good idea? Let's stop paying them protection money. I'm sure they won't mind. It'll go fine. They won't even notice. Emperors don't really keep track of their money, right? Like they don't really care much about the money that's owed to them. I'm sure will slip under their radar. It does not go well, which as you read the Bible, it never goes well for anyone in in the area of Canaan to rebel against the emperor, empires that rule out, out in Babylon. It never goes well. Even when God protects them, it still ends up really bad for them. So it says, in the valley of Siddim, the, in the, oh, oops. So they come into battle, and the, the passage doesn't even really bother to tell us how the battle went. You're just supposed to assume they lost badly. And really, so it, it says they met in battle, and then it says, now the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Gomor Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled into the hills. So it's not a question of, of whether they won or not. It's a question of, you know, it's kind of interesting that they hid in tar pits when they lost. Um, they got destroyed. So much so that the four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food. Then they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. All of a sudden, right there at the end, we find out why we're hearing this whole story about why we zoomed out and talked about these regional politics in this war. Because these four emperors came down to bring these five mayors back into line because the five mayors did something very foolish. And in the midst of it, Lot got caught up in this because Lot also did something foolish. You notice, remember last week or two weeks ago, we talked about how Abraham and Lot were in the promised land and they, had two, they were too wealthy to serve as the, to have one location be the basis for both of their ranches. There wasn't enough land around any one point for them to support all of their, all of their uh, herds. So they decided to split the land. But instead of taking another piece of the promised land, Lot chose the area across the Jordan because it's more fertile, because it's got more irrigation, because he wasn't going to have to trust in God to send rain as much as he would have in the promised land. But now he's taken that a step further. Not only is he living in that land, but he's actually moved into one of the cities for protection. And so the five mayors have made a foolish decision, and Lot has made a foolish decision, and that, those foolish decisions have gotten them all in trouble. So, the first thing we should know about this story is that Abram's neighbors and Lot got themselves into trouble through their own bad choices. Okay? I, want, I want us to understand the context of what exactly Abraham is responding to when he acts in this story. That this is, this is an instance in which none of these people are entirely innocent in terms of how they got into this mess. They didn't just get caught up in something bigger than them. The, the mayors made a, a bad choice by rebelling, and Lot made a bad choice by, and I promise I couldn't find a better way to say this, throwing his lot in with the other, with the mayors. I tried to find another way to say it, but I couldn't. It was right there, low-hanging fruit. Anyway, so 
they're all in trouble because of their bad decisions. In the next verse, it tells us, a man who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. Now, this is the first instance in the Bible where we hear the word Hebrew. And there's something very interesting that I learned about this word. We always think of this word as an ethnic term, right? It refers to the descendants of Abraham. Except that we don't use it to refer to all the descendants of Abraham, because we don't use it to refer to the Ishmaelites or the Edomites or other people that descended from him, but we use it to, dis- to refer to him and to um, Jacob and his children and-, and to the Israelites. Well, that's because Hebrew is not an ethnic term. It doesn't refer to an ethnicity. It is a cultural term. It refers to a person or a group of people in a particular cultural role. The word comes from the word to cross over, to cross a boundary. And it basically refers to people on the margins of society. So it would refer to people who are immigrants, who are refugees, who are traveling um, ranchers, you know, shepherds, uh, people who are marauders. Basically, the unsavory people that dwell on the outsides of society but aren't really part of us, the, the main culture. This is why later on, Abraham's great-grandchildren are going to go to Egypt, and when it comes time to sit down and eat, it says they serve the Egyptians by themselves because Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is detestable to Egyptians. So words, some, I would say that it appears from the, from the way the Bible uses this term. First of all, it takes a very long time before Hebrews start calling, Israelites start calling themselves Hebrews. At first, it's really just, just others that call them Hebrews. And it seems to fall somewhere in terms of our culture, somewhere between the word gypsy and the N-word. Somewhere in there, it's this word that is derogatory, that puts people down and considers them other, but which then the people it's used for take it on themselves. And it, I, haven't, I haven't gone down this road yet, but I want, I'm really interested to go down the road of when they call God the God of the Hebrews. But the point is that this is a derogatory term, and it's introduced here to remind us of the place that Abraham has in Canaanite society at this time. Abraham's neighbors look down on him basically as a vagrant. They, might do, they would probably do business with him because he's rich, but he's not one of them. He's a Hebrew. He's an outsider. He's somebody else. He hasn't put down roots. He doesn't, he's not from here. He's not one of us. This is the attitude that the people who have been captured, the people who have been defeated in battle, have towards Abraham. I think we should keep that in mind when we look at how Abraham responds when he finds out about this battle. It says, Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Honor, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. So how does Abram respond when he finds out that Lot and these five mayors and their people have all gotten caught up in their own foolish mistakes? All these people who look down on him and think of him as an outsider and probably would not lift a finger to help him, how does he respond? He immediately set out to help them. <clears throat> he got together every person in his household that he could trust to fight. It was 318, which tells you how wealthy he was at this point. And he chases them. And Dan is like the, out, the northern limits of, the, of Canaan. He chased them all the way. 
He went, he, he put in, I mean, he didn't just like make a symbolic effort, like, oh, and try to get them and they, oh, they escaped. Well, I tried. He chased them as far as he needed to, to help. And obviously there's a family connection going on. The primary reason why Abraham reacts is because Lot is his nephew. And he has a family bond with Lot. But what we're going to find out is Abraham is also responding to the needs of the other people that were caught up in this. And that he's also thinking about the people in the cities that were caught up in it. So he, he chases them to the northern end of Canaan. And when, it gets there, it says during, when he gets there, it says, During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. This is the first time that we find out that they also took the population of Sodom and Gomorrah with them. So there's people involved, not just Lot and his family. Now, how how was Abram... Okay, so it starts out with five kings, or five mayors, rebel against four emperors, and the four emperors destroy the five mayors. Now, one rancher is going after the four emperors, and what do we expect to happen? We would expect him to lose, except none of you thought he was going to lose, right? Nobody thought that he was actually going to lose this battle, and why is that? It's partly because you, you know that the Bible doesn't end there. There's quite a bit after Genesis 14. But also because Abraham is different from the, four may, or the five mayors in that he bears a promise from God. So notice that the story doesn't even really seem concerned with explaining to us how he won. It tells us that he divided his, his forces, but it doesn't say like they were shocked and they didn't see it coming that he divided his forces. And so his stunning strategy is what got them off guard. It just tells us, yeah, he divided his forces and they fought and they lost and, and, and the, the emperors lost. It's taken as a given that this is what's going to happen because we already know what God said to Abraham back in Genesis 12. He said, I will bless those who bless you, and, I will, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. And remember, we talked about how that promise was a promise that as Abraham was doing God's will, God would be with him to accomplish his purposes. And so as Abram goes in to fight these four emperors, he is able to win because he carries God's blessing. Abraham was able to help his neighbors because he had God's blessing. And I want to underscore that right now because that is the ultimate essential reason. Without God's blessing, he stands no chance. With God's blessing, he wins. Okay? I want to make sure that we're clear on that. It's because of God's blessing that he wins. I also want us to recognize another very interesting thing going on in this story. How many people were on Abraham's side in the battle? 218? Nope. Good memory. Any other guesses? Um, I don't mean 319 because you're also including Abraham. It was Abraham had 318 people with him, but Abraham wasn't the only one that went into battle. If you remember, it says that Abraham was living near the great chief of Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eskel and Honor, all of whom were allied with Abram. He had three allies. And at the very end of the story, we're going to get confirmation of what this implies, which is that those allies went with Abram into battle. Just a surprising thing that I never really picked up on, but that Abraham went into battle with three allies. Now, we have no idea how many men they brought. 
But it's very likely that Abraham and his men were less than half of the soldiers that went into battle. But they went into battle because Abraham led them into battle. These other three allies would not have gone if Abram hadn't gone. And what that means is that before this story ever happened, Abraham had developed relationships with Mamre, Eskel, and Honor such that they were willing to go into battle with their soldiers and follow him all the way up to the northern end of Canaan for the sake of saving his nephew. That's the kind of relationship that he had with these Canaanites that lived around him before this story ever started. So Abraham was able to help his neighbors because he had allies in his neighborhood. Now, ultimately, it was, it was God who made... Because four ranchers is still not enough to defeat four emperors. Like, it's still not a math thing. It's still a God thing. But the fact is that even with God on his side, Abram partnered with others in his neighborhood in order to accomplish this part of God's will. And now we get to the final scene of the story, which is really fascinating. Because you have to understand that what has just happened is potentially a complete revolution in the political order of the ancient Near East. Because four emperors just came down and destroyed five mayors, and on their way out, this rancher leads a coalition of other ranchers, and they defeat him. So now Abraham is the guy who defeated the four kings, the four emperors, right? He is now potentially the big power in Canaan. And as he's coming back, everything that they took, all the goods, all the people, they belong to him as the winner of the battle. And so Abraham, as he's coming back down into Canaan, he's going to be met by two people. He's going to be met by the king of Sodom, who is concerned about recovering the population of his city. And he's also going to be met by a guy named Melchizedek. Melchizedek is the king of a city called Salem, which as far as we can tell is the ancestor to Jerusalem. And it is the, prominent, the most prominent city in the area at that time. So Melchizedek is the king among kings. He is the big guy in the neighborhood. He's kind of like the godfather. And so, it's time, and so when these, these two kings are going to come out to meet Abraham, and they're going to kind of sort out what's happened to the pecking order. What is this new political reality? And something really fascinating is going to happen. It says, after Abram returned from defeating Kedileomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, the, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be, God, praise be to God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Okay, so here's what's happening. King of Sodom is coming out to meet Abram to hopefully recover his people. The king, Melchizedek comes out to referee the whole thing. And so he sets out this, this banquet to honor Abraham because he need, they all need to now be on Abraham's good side because Abraham is the big guy now. He just won this battle. He defeated emperors. So they're worried about Abraham and what he's going to do because this is the guy that they were treating as a marginal gypsy kind of character, and all of a sudden he's a military power. So he blesses him, and he blesses him in the name of El Elyon, and he recognizes that it is El Elyon, the highest God, who has blessed and given Abraham this battle, this victory. 
So he does honor to Abraham. And Abraham responds in a very surprising way. It says, then Abram gave him a tenth of everything, meaning everything that he had captured from the emperors. Now, why did Abram give Melchizedek a tenth of everything? Well, oftentimes we, we assume that, that Melchizedek was the priest of the God of Abraham and that Abram is paying a tithe to the priest as a way of paying a tithe to God. And certainly, Melchizedek will be taken in the Psalms and in the, gospel, or in, and in the book of Hebrews as a um, symbolic figure of a, of a uh, righteous priest king. But Melchizedek himself almost certainly did not serve the same God as Abraham. There's no evidence that he did serve the same God as Abraham. The God he serves is called El Elyon. Now, in Hebrew... El Elyon means the highest God. El God Elyon highest. However, El is also, and, and so it's, it's, it's completely generic. Little G God. The way you refer to, typically refer to capital G God is Elohim. So little, little G God, the highest God. It could also be talking about a God whose name was El, a Canaanite God named El, and saying that he is the highest or there's also a god named Elion, who was remembered to be the creator of heaven and earth. So it could be talking about the god Elion. What it seems to be saying is that Melchizedek is claiming to serve the god who is the highest in the pantheon. The top god. Okay? And so he blesses Abraham. And maybe this is a way of being culturally sensitive at the time, that he's not being specific. But he blesses Abraham in the name of the highest god. And Abraham accepts the blessing, and he pays Melchizedek a tenth, not because Melchizedek is serving the right God, but because he's signaling that he respects Melchizedek's place as the godfather of the neighborhood. The top king gets a cut of everybody's side business, right? Like, that's what the godfather does. He gets, he gets a cut of everything that's going on. He gets his protection money. Abram has a chance to completely overturn the politics of the region and to say, you know what? God promised me the land of Canaan. I'm just going to take it now. I've got the army, I've got the reputation, I've got the plunder. I'm just going to take it for myself. Clearly, this is what God wants me to do. And instead, he recognizes Melchizedek. He says, no, you're, you're, still, you're still in charge. I'm not trying to kick you off the throne. I'm not going to conquer Salem. I'm not going to, I will respect your position as the top political authority in the area. And this carries on with the way he then, when they moved to business with the king of Sodom, he carries on this surprising approach. It says, the king of Sodom said to him, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. His opening bid is very humble. Right? He, is, he is worried that Abram's not going to give him anything or is going to try and make him buy his people back. So his, his opening negotiation is, you keep all the money, all the goods, everything of value, just give me back the people that live in my town. He's expecting to negotiate and he's expecting Abraham to drive a hard bargain. But instead, Abraham said to the king of Sodom, With raised hand I have sworn an oath to the Lord God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who were with me, who went with me, to honor Eshkel and Mamre. Let them have their share. That's the end of the story. And that's also where we get the confirmation that his allies went with him. But there's two important things that Abraham says here that, tell, that show us his intentions and what he's trying to accomplish. Because for us, this cultural language is not necessarily all that meaningful. 
But the first thing that he does is he takes this as an opportunity to go on the record about who the highest king really is. Did you catch that? Because Melchizedek said the highest God, sorry, the highest God. Melchizedek said the highest God. And then Abraham says, with raised hand, I have sworn an oath to the highest God, Yahweh. He actually uses the name for the specific God that he is serving. Basically to say Yahweh, who is the true creator of heaven and earth. He's identifying who he's serving. Because Melchizedek basically said, wow, for you to have done what you have done, the highest God must be on your side. And Abraham says, yes, that is true. His name is Yahweh. This specific God is the God who's the highest God. So he takes the opportunity to identify the God who gave him that victory. Without, without shaming or rejecting Melchizedek or being combative to Melchizedek when he blesses him in the name of a Canaanite God, Abraham still takes the opportunity to point out the highest God is actually the God of Abraham, the one who, who called me here and, and went with me into battle. And he says that he swore to that God that he will not accept anything belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. Notice he's doing this for the sake of sending a message. He doesn't want the king of Sodom to ever be able to say, Abraham is prosperous because he won that battle that one time and took everything that belonged to us, and that's what started him being wealthy and prosperous. So that he could be bitter and say, everything else good that happens to Abraham is simply because he happened to win that one battle, and then he took it from us. He doesn't want the king of Sodom to, to be able to credit Abraham's success to this one incident. But Abraham is still going to be rich. He already is rich. So if the king of Sodom can't say that he made Abraham rich, then who is the king of Sodom going to have to give credit to? Who actually gave Abraham his, his success? It was God, the God that he's giving credit to. So what's happening here is Abraham has an opportunity, both with, both with Melchizedek and with the king of Sodom, to be able to build himself up. He could have tell, told Melchizedek, uh, yeah, thanks for the blessing, but take a hike. I'm in charge now. He could have told the king of Sodom, um, you can have your people back for a price because I want to make as much as I can off of this. But if he had done any of that, he would have been behaving just like all the other kings, but he wouldn't have told them anything about God. He wouldn't have, they wouldn't have known anything about the blessing of God. It would have been all about Abraham. Aside from the fact that he would be doing something wrong, he would also be obscuring the true source of his blessing. So what happens in this encounter when he has this, this meeting with these two kings is that he is laser focused on his mission, which is to share the blessing of God with his neighbors. So Abraham didn't use the situation to his own advantage. He used it to witness to God's blessing. What he did was risky because he had a momentary opportunity that wasn't going to last forever to put himself up as head king of Canaan. And he let it pass by. And he had an opportunity to set himself up as the wealthiest king in Canaan. And he gave the goods back. And that sends a signal that he is either absolutely insane or he trusts in some other source of security. And he is willing to pass on taking an advantage over other people in order to be loyal to God and to follow God's vision, God's mission in Canaan. 
This is one of those instances where Abraham shows tremendous faith because it is so hard for us to let go of advantages that we have. It is so hard for us to let go when we say, oh, now I have the chance because this thing happened. I have the chance to do this thing I always wanted or to get a leg up on everybody. or to, And we, we want to use everything for our own advantage. But Abraham uses everything that happens in this victory to share the blessing of God with his neighbors. And I told you a couple of weeks ago that in the story of Abraham, every time he does things really well, every time he makes the right decision, God responds by renewing the covenant. And what do you think happens in Genesis 15? There's a significant moment of renewing the covenant that happens in response to the fact that Abraham was faithful to God in this moment when he could have taken advantage for himself. Now this <coughs> story may... Uh, this story may not seem very applicable to our own lives. I don't anticipate that any of us will have neighbors that get kidnapped by marauders and carried off and you have to get together an army to go capture them. So I know what can we learn from this story? Well, there's three really important things that I think we can carry over into the way we love our neighbors. And the first thing is that loving your neighbor means loving, helping people who make bad choices. It's really easy for us to focus on only loving innocent victims. Because the truth is, it's easy to love the people we consider to be innocent victims. You don't actually need all that much help. You don't need all that much training or gospel teaching. You know, anybody can feel uh, the desire to help someone who's an innocent victim of circumstance. It's harder to love someone when they get into a mess that you warned them about repeatedly, and they still made a foolish decision that got themselves into it. And somehow even we as Christians have get, taken that up as a worthy excuse to say, hey, they got themselves into this mess. I, I, can, I should just leave them in it. We take it as an excuse that it somehow matters whose fault it is that they got into the mess as far as whether we're going to help them get out of it. Thanks be to God that he doesn't think that way, right? How many of us have been helped by Jesus out of a mess we put ourselves in? If you don't raise your hand, you're either not telling the truth or you just haven't been helped by Jesus yet. Because that's everybody. That's all of us. That's the human condition. Every one of us is a person who makes bad choices. That's why Paul says, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Not the innocent, not the righteous, the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If we're going to be Christ-like in our love, then we can't set those parameters and say, well, I'll help them as long as I consider them an innocent victim of circumstance. At my brother's service, um, one of the things I talked about was that he helped me in, a, in a, a time in my life when I was an absolute mess. I had nothing going for me, and my brother believed in me, and he let me live with him and his wife when they were, um, they had only been married for a few years, and he let me uh, uh, rent out their upper level, and he, he just, he took a risk on me when I didn't have a whole lot going for me, and he, he just believed in me. And... I was not an innocent victim of circumstance. I was just a foolish kid who made bad choices and they didn't work out. <laughs> and he, didn't, he never looked down on me. He didn't blame me for any of that. And that completely changed. That, that was one of the things that God used to change the trajectory of my life. 
was having a, a home base and, and people who believed in me even though I hadn't given them much reason to. Um, the power of loving people through situations they got themselves into is tremendous. And we have no right to deny them that because we all receive it, right? And so as we seek for opportunities to love our neighbors, it is so tempting to say, hey, I told them not to mow the lawn at that setting. It was too low. I'm definitely not going to loan them my fertilizer spreader. Like, No, that was your own problem. I don't know. That was a silly example. But you know what I mean, right? Like, We can't, we can't stand on that ground and, and reflect God's love. The second thing I want us to learn is that loving our neighbor usually means cooperating with outsiders. What I mean is people outside the congregation, maybe even outside the faith, right? And that's what we see Abraham doing multiple times. In, in several different ways, he's cooperating with Canaanites in order to accomplish God's will. And I've heard some feedback from groups about, um, you know, feeling like I as an individual, as some, of our, some of our study groups, so I, you know, I as an individual may not be cut out for all this neighboring stuff. That's okay, because the whole point about neighboring is that you're not supposed to do things alone. So are the books that you're reading will advocate things like block parties. You think, wow, a block party is way out of my skill set, way out of my ability. That's fine, because you're not supposed to put it on alone. And it's not the church that's going to put it on for you. The idea is, if the block party for your neighborhood is a good way to go, hopefully you'll find people in your neighborhood who are good at grilling, who are extroverts and good at going around and knocking on doors and inviting people, that you will partner with people in your neighborhood to help each other. Because ultimately, that's, what, that's the design, is for neighbors to help each other. And Pastor Rachel spoke very eloquently last week about how important it is to give people opportunities to live into their dignity as servants of God, that, that as we find our purpose in serving others, we need to give other people the opportunity. And so what we find is that one of the best ways you can serve your neighborhood is by partnering with others in your neighborhood and maybe not bringing a church program into your neighborhood, but instigating a grassroots thing in your, in your neighborhood that other people can be involved in. But here's the thing about that. Here's the tricky thing, that you can't just walk up to strangers and start a network, right? And this is the hard thing. This is the really hard thing, is that you have to have the relationships with your neighbors where you can call on them to do that. And you have to be behaving now in a way that will lay a foundation for later cooperation. Paul says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you to, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you may not be dependent on anybody. One of the things he's talking about there is living a life, minding your own business. Do you know that the Bible says that? Um, and, and living quietly. What he's talking about is you can, if you live your life in your neighborhood belligerently in a way that creates enemies, you're not going to have anybody that you can call on later in order to get help or in order to partner with you to help someone else, right? If you don't care about the parking rules on your street, if you don't care about what time, how late you blast music, if you're a belligerent neighbor, you're not laying a groundwork for a relationship that you can build on later. And so this is not just something that comes up in those moments of urgent need. It is something that comes up in our day-to-day -day lives with our neighbors, that we need to be laying foundations for good relationships. That means a lot of self-control, day in and day out. That means a lot of empathy with our neighbors and thinking about them and their needs. 
and setting a foundation. Let me ask you this, weird scenario. One of your neighbors gets kidnapped tomorrow. How many of your neighbors will go into battle with you to save them? I know it's a nonsense scenario, but that's what we're talking about today. Like if, let's say something happens in your neighborhood and you realize there's a need that needs to be addressed. Nobody else sees it and you can't meet it alone. Are you, do you have the kind of relationship with your neighbors where they'll, where they'll follow you into that? If not, that might be the kind of thing we need to work toward. And finally, I want us to remember that loving your neighbor means using God's purposes for his, God's blessings for his purposes, not our own. Because as we help people, as we, as we get involved in other people's lives and as we bless them, we have the opportunity to take credit for it ourselves with the opportunity to use it to build ourselves up. We, have, we can make ourselves the big deal or use it to accomplish our own goals. And that is a very strong temptation. And many people in scripture fall to that temptation to use God's blessing for their own purposes. But if we're going to be truly blessing our neighbors, we've got to remember, I'm not the blessing. Jesus is the blessing. You can see this happen in a story in Acts, not long after the resurrection, Peter and John go to the temple and there's a crippled beggar who asks them for money and instead um, Peter heals them, heals him. And everybody gets surprised and they want to start making a big deal about Peter, but instead Peter says, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant Jesus. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is, Jesus name, it is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. Now, what you don't notice in that story necessarily, until you really think about it, is the choice that Peter made. The people of Jerusalem wanted to make a big, big deal about Peter, maybe found the church of Peter. And Peter instead says, no, it was all because of Jesus, because he knows the church of Peter can't save anybody, but the church of Jesus, God can use to save everybody. <clears throat> So instead of making himself the big deal, he made Jesus the big deal, and they threw him in prison, right? They, they arrested him, and they beat him, and they persecuted him because the name of Jesus was dangerous. The name of Peter really wasn't. But that was the choice that he made, to give the credit to Jesus and to endure the opposition that that would cause rather than making a big deal about himself and getting, you know, getting attention and, and all the benefits that come with being an important person in Jerusalem, and that's, that is the model that we have to follow as we are able to love others well in Jesus' name, that we ensure that we're always pointing people back to Jesus, that we're always giving the credit where it is due, and we're not handling those, the, the blessings, we're not handling those situations in a way that makes people um, look at us instead of Jesus. Or, if we are pointing them to Jesus, make sure we're doing it in a way that makes them actually want to see Jesus. Because sometimes you do something, you say, yeah, I did this for Jesus, and they say, then I don't want anything to do with Jesus. Because that was, that was mean, that was selfish. The goal that we always have to keep in mind is that the true blessing is Jesus, and we are connecting people with Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you so much that we have a blessing in Jesus to share with the world, that we are not your, we as people are not your solution for the world, but you have given us knowledge of your solution. You have given us um, Jesus to share. We thank you that Jesus is the true salvation and the true help for everyone who needs him and that we can bring them to Jesus. We pray that you would help us to remember that as we go out to help our neighbors. Give us 
a desire to help those around us, even after the 10th time we told them not to do it that way and they got themselves into that same mess again because they keep making wrong decisions the same way every one of us does. Give us your patience and your love to continue serving our neighbors, helping our neighbors, working with our neighbors in order to bless people in your name. And we pray that through everything we do to serve our neighbors, that your name would be glorified and that this community would know that the blessings come from you. In Jesus' name, amen. We believe that whenever you hear the gospel preached, you have an opportunity to respond. And so hopefully today, God is putting something on your heart as you are called to take the next step in your walk with God. We believe that every disciple of Jesus is called to connect with God and his church, to grow in faith and love, and to serve their community and world. And so hopefully you'll, you're being pulled towards making, taking a step in one of those directions. But we have a, some specific things to highlight for you as ways that you can take a next step. The first thing is you're looking to connect with God and his church.